0: The Magic Slate by Pat Black Terry tied back her hair and slid a heavy jacket on over the tops of her scruffies. It was time to trail Ben down to the corner shop. This was how a wet Wednesday went during the school holidays when Terry needed cigarettes. The boy didn't want to go, wriggling while Terry fitted his ways, truculent as a puppy straining at the leash. In the shop itself, only a matter of yards away, but an epic journey on days like this. Ben drifted over to the stand featuring the cheapo toys, bizarre plastic confections in garish blue, orange and neon pink. At first, Terry had been firm with him, refusing to buy him the tight hat ranks of green army men. Or the polystyrene jets, which should have come with a guarantee to break within five minutes of their maiden flight, but these trinkets were a price worth paying to keep the boy quiet. He had been especially touchy during the foul weather, denied even the sanctuary of the back garden and his screeching fantasies of war and destruction amid the flower beds. Terry first saw the magic slate as a flash of pink in the boy's hands a rude flare on the periphery of her vision. She remembered something similar from when she was a girl. A flexible plastic sheet, tinged purple, running to searing laser gun pink at the edges. Used a pink stylus to draw pictures on the surface of the sheet before peeling it back from the cardboard backing to erase it. She recognised the blank look on Ben's face as he turned it over in his hands concentration. Any distraction for the boy was a blessing. She bought the magic slate for him. Back in the house, Ben felt his artwork scrawling dinosaurs, robots and other creatures across the glowing surface while Terry carried out some chores. As she smoked a cigarette by the open patio door, she could see her son reflected in the glass, knelt on the chair, face held close to his work, his long blonde hair trailing towards the shiny acrylic surface. Such tranquil concentration was rare for the boy. "'You all right, Ben?' she called out. "Mm "'Mm-hmm. You want a juice?' "'No, thank you.' Astonished by the sudden outbreak of manners, (laughs) Terry padded over to the table (laughs) to see what he was drawing. It was a face. The eyes were shaped like rugby balls, far too large for its head. Tiny dots signified the pupils. Hair was added in stiff spines jutting out punkishly from the top of the head. What disturbed Terry most was the mouth. At first, it seemed like a jagged mountain range or a crop of bristly Scots pines. When she looked closer, she saw that it was a meshwork of fine lines, giving the impression of needle teeth. Ben was drawing something beneath this mouth that might have been flailing arms. Then his eyes shifted beneath the fringe, and he dropped the pink stylus, tearing the sheet off its plastic backing. The face and everything else on the plastic surface disappeared. Terry frowned. What was it you were drawing? nothing? It looked really good. Who was it? The boy shrugged. He began to draw again, a set of sine waves undulating across the purple plain. You don't have to hide things from me, she said in a softer voice. It was Mazindas. Who? Who? Mazimdas, Is that someone off Cats? the boy giggled. <laughs> "'No.' "'Is it someone out of a TV show? Ninja Masters?' "'No, oh, definitely not.' "'Is he a ghost?' the boy brightened. "'He might be a ghost.' "'Oh, I see.' She had crossed over to the sink to pour a glass of water when Ben said, He's coming. Who is? Mazindas. He's coming. Is he a friend or something? Not really a friend. Is this like when you told me about Jim and Max at the nursery, remember? Before you started school. And I spoke to Mrs. Turner and she told me that there wasn't really a Jim and Max. The boy did not reply. Then... Are you listening? (coughs) He sighed. No. Not like Jim and Max. Mazimdas is coming. Today. What for? For us. The boy peeled back the sheet, then smoothed it over. Who is Mazimdas? Terry crossed over to the table, standing in front of him. Look at me when I'm speaking to you, Ben. The boy looked up and smiled he likes you Mm. he really really likes you more than dad does I think I think I'll be having a word with your dad I think he's been letting you watch nasty films again (laughs) it's not a film Ben said look I'll show you he lifted the slate towards Terry she took the slate from him it's empty no it isn't look the boy tapped the slate with the plastic stylus. There was something on the slate, something indistinct. Two long, thin blobs about five or six inches apart. The image had some kind of resonance, something she couldn't quite connect with. That's an air bubble or something. She lifted the pinkish sheet off the flat white car- car- cardboard backing and ran her hands over the sheer surface. These things never last long, you know. I had one when I was a girl. It stopped sticking to the cardboard. It's not a bubble, Mum. Put the sheet back on. Ben pulled the sheet taut and smoothed it down. The two blobs were still there, but they seemed to have grown slightly longer. You see it? (laughs) I'm not seeing anything, silly boy. He's getting closer. You'll see him soon. That's enough now. She put the slate back onto the table. The boy picked it up and began to draw two long oval eyes once more. I'll show you what he looks like. I'll draw his face properly. Is this someone you've met? A man or a teacher? No? Terry crossed to the patio and closed the door, locking it tight and tugging on the handle for good measure. The rain continued to patter the windowpane, heavier now. She placed her hands on the window and peered out into the garden. Nothing unusual. Grass too long. Summer toys piled up against the shed in a vibrant chaos of red and yellow, sharp contrast to the downpour. She drew back and then her heart began to beat faster. Not because of something outside the window, but because of the rapidly evaporating shape her hand had left on the glass. She returned to the kitchen table, where Ben was tracing a spiral pattern inside one of the long oval eyes. Overcome by a sudden creeping sense of disgust, she snatched the sheet away. Hey! Ben cried. Just a minute, I want to check something. She cleared the slate, then replaced it. The two blobs were still there, except much larger. She brought the edge of her hands up against the blobs. If they corresponded to the edge of another set of hands, then they were freakishly large. Ten dots had appeared just above the two blobs. By the side (coughs) of the blobs, two long archways appeared, right about where the meat of the thumb joint would be. Terry shivered and checked the slate over front and back, She held it up so that the light played across the flat surfaces, showing off any possible lumps and contours in the material or its cardboard backing. There were none. Ben giggled, taking the slate back. It won't be long. Look. He began to pull the sheet back and forth as fast as he could. The image grew more distinct with every impact. A psychedelic flipbook animation... It was unmistakably a pair of hands pressed against the inside of the magic slate, except that where the edges of the fingers should be, there were triangular notches that could have been scored by long, twisted fingernails or claws. <laughs> He's almost here. Terry snatched the magic slate off the boy. Give me that stupid thing! Ben dropped the stylus. You'll be sorry, oh, would I? I think I'll keep hold of this. He says you don't have to be scared. He only wants to play. Stop that! Terry's voice quivered. Stretching on her tiptoes, she placed the magic slate on top of the kitchen cupboard. It's no use, the boy said. He's seen you now. He's on his way. Enough silliness, go through to the living room. But I don't want to see him, that I said go through! The boy sighed and stomped out of the kitchen. Once he was gone, Terry lifted the magic slate off the top of the kitchen cupboard. When she saw what was on it, she gasped. It was definitely a pair of hands, though they were bigger than any person's, bigger even than Joel's with his construction-callous fingertips and oven-glove palms. The fingers were obscenely long, razor-tipped, ready to clutch and rend. Terry crossed to the kitchen sink, fishing in their pockets for her cigarette lighter. She averted her eyes from the magic slate as the flame tickled the edges before catching light. The pink plastic wrinkled, bunched up and imploded with a feline hiss and black smoke curled up from the edge of the cardboard backing. She held it until the heat flicked flicked the edges of her fingers, then dropped the ashes into the sink. Ben ran through with the triggering of the smoke alarm. Terry, waving a dishcloth underneath the detector, said, It's okay, honey. Mummy's just had an accident. Go on through to the living room. I'll make you a milkshake and a cheese and pickle sandwich if you like. You burn a slate! I'm sorry, Ben. Mummy's a klutz. I was lighting a cigarette and it caught fire. It's very dangerous. Don't worry. I can get you a new one, though. Or, hey, have you ever heard of Sketch? The boy's shoulders jerked in frustration, and he tore at his own neck with his fingers. I like the magic slate! I know you did, honey. Hey, what are you scratching at? Ben tried to shy away, but she pulled back the edges of his jumper. Looks like a heat rash you've got there. Why don't you take this jumper off and put on a T-shirt? Then she noticed that the rash was on both sides of Ben's neck. Two long thin blobs like the outer edge of two immense hands. Two hours later, Joel pressed the central locking fob and his car beat twice. Normally this sound led to Ben's head disturbing the curtains in the living room, but not today. "'Rainy day,' Joel sang, considering the sodden garden toys. "'Dream all day.'" Inside, Joel hung up his coat and unlaced his shoes, stretching his toes on the wooden flooring before shuffling into the living room. "'All right, kiddo!' he called out. No response. "'Terry!' he sighed. "'You've left the TV on, love. What a waste of electricity!' He crossed over to the coffee table, where Ben's drawing pad, pens, and pencils were scattered across the surface. Joel grunted and began to gather the pens. Then he saw what was sketch on the pad. One figure had long curly hair with a set of bulging eyes peering through the fringe. It looked disconcertingly like Terry, but the clear blue eyes were grotesquely rendered. She looked terror-stricken. Beside her was a boy with a long blonde fringe, his mouth downturned and bright blue tears dripping down the face in ever-decreasing drops. Above them, a long-armed, spiky-haired figure with needle teeth wrapped two immense, clawed hands around Terry and Ben. (laughs) Good Lord, Joel snorted, that looks nothing like me at all. Uh He went into the kitchen and clicked on the kettle. It looked like they'd gone to the shop. They'd be back soon.
1: No biscuits either. Stupid, stupid, stupid. He rocks through a quick inventory as he stands at the door. Cycle helmet, shoulder bag, claw hammer, child's cricket bat, unmarked, with five six-inch nails splitting the willow. It was a gift for his ninth birthday from one of the uncles. Whoever it was clearly didn't know his nephew. It saw a few days' use as a makeshift sword, And then it was retired to the back of the toy cupboard. To play cricket, you need a team. He feels ridiculous, standing in the metal lift as it shuttles him down to the street. The helmet strap digs into his chin. His arms stick out at unnatural angles, pushed upwards by the glossy magazines he's taped around. He read that tip on the internet, posted by a self defense expert in Italy. The rest of the world is watching. They are taking notes. His new life reminds him of the games he used to play when he was a kid, alone, hunched into his desk, willing the computer screen to pull him in. The everyday tales of survival he reads online sound like dispatches from that unreal world, not something happening on his doorstep. A game manufacturer in Texas has already launched a playable app set in London's wolf-torn streets. He thought it was a crack when they first ran the news story, It took a few reports before they started muttering, well, as if they could scarcely believe it was true. Then came the photos, the videos, the confirmation. After the last full moon, they estimated that around 95% of Londoners had turned. Of the remaining 5%, many had already been bitten and were silently ticking until the next cycle. Red Riding Hood had met her match. Niall attracts a few glances as he steps from the lobby into the street. The faces look almost normal. It isn't quite that time yet. The separation is starting, though, The split into pack and non-pack, into them and us. They always look relaxed, their smiles toothful and wide. We hurry like rats from the flood. Clinging onto our cricket bats and our cableless petrol-driven chainsaws, his feet feel heavy as he clods along the road. Gamesmaster to his left thigh. PC gamer to his right. <laughs> his eyes flick from side to side, trying to keep them in view as long as possible, as long as it takes to get them there and home again. Lifts his head up, picks up the pace. He knows better than to look at them. Eye contact gets you killed, or worse. You can feel the sweat pooling against the back rim of the helmet, tickling through the hairs on his neck. Grip the hammer a little tighter. Keep the bag around the back, your arms free to swing. The milk isn't important anyway, it's only milk! No one dies from lack of milk. No one has their guts ripped out and trailed over a lamppost because they haven't had their daily cup of white stuff. They dribble the free and the tea. Stupid, stupid, stupid! You can already see the change in a few of them. That pack over by the entrance to the tube station. shoulders hunched, hands clenching and unclenching. One of them glances back over her shoulder and he sees it. Eyes popping like she's ODing on something. Lips pulling back, a suggestion of beast in her unhidden hunger. Time is turning against them. She's snarling now, visibly snarling, <coughs> lips pulling back over teeth. They restrain her, but not for long. The pack is only so strong. <coughs> Niall tucks the hammer into his armpit while he wipes his palm on his jeans. It's so slick. He worries he'll drop something when it matters, just as he's swinging for the muzzle. He may be imagining it, but he thinks he can feel their heat pouring like a molten river from the massed roofs on every street corner. He glances up for a second, sees the thick black hair on their forearms, their ears tugging ever so gradually up into points, their legs buckling. There's no way he's going to make it to the store in time. No way he can even make it home! He clutches the hammer in one hand, the rubberized grip of the cricket bat in the other. He stops walking, and he lifts his head. The irony is that the city feels almost normal when the moon is on the wane. At that end of the cycle, when the wolf lies dormant, they seem the same as ever. They fix the broken shop windows, they refit the bars, they eat, they drink, they blog, and they sleep. And then the cycle comes around again, and they tear it all apart, tooth and claw ripping them to pieces pulling down everything that made their city so great, doing more damage in a single night than they could ever hope to fix in the following month. As the nearest pack drops to all fours, he starts swinging the hammer, feeling the weight of it pull his hand around and around, drawing a silver circle under the moonlight. There are more of them now, more than he can count, and more coming. As far as he can see, the city is given over to them, the beasts of legend, the wolves of London. Long before they reach long before he can taste their rotten breath, smell their doggy musk, Nile stops swimming. He drops the hammer and the bat. He sits on the ground and he waits to join the pack.
2: Mother's Milk by J. A. Hopper. Everybody said the first baby was the hardest. All the books told you what to expect, then completely undermined that by saying every baby was different and that really nobody knew what to expect. Her friends' experiences with their own kids had ranged from the nightmarish to the transcendental. But in all Jo's NCT classes, breastfeeding coffee mornings, not that you were really supposed to drink it, and furtive internet searches, she'd never come across anything like this. The awful thing was, she'd been so bloody smug up until now. Her pregnancy had been smooth sailing. Labour a speedy, uncomplicated six hours. And unlike the puce, squash-faced goblins, people inexplicably cooed over on one born every minute, even as a newborn, Eddie had been remarkably attractive. Mind you, Pete was handsome, and everyone said her son looked like his father. Eddie had long lashes as thick as a camel's, and chocolate's drop eyes so dark they were almost black. His velvet, soft skin was a sort of pinky gold, like the more superior kind of cherub, and his hair was a silken cloud of glossy ringlets. And then she tried weaning him. During the first endless weeks, after Pete had scurried eagerly back to work from the purgatory of paternity leave, and she and Eddie were left alone together, Joe had often thanked the gods fate, genetic, luck, or whatever, that Eddie was such an easy baby. She was determined to do this mothering thing properly. She bought all the books and signed up to every website in class going, from newborn massage to baby sign language, but hardly any of it had turned out to be necessary in the end. He'd slept through the night almost from birth, fed like a dream, Even his dirty nappies were hymns to regularity and consistency and smelled oddly like caramel. (laughs) Still, she'd secretly looked forward to the day when she could stop breastfeeding. (laughs) At first, it had been difficult. (laughs) Then difficult and agonising. Then merely agonising. Then, after six weeks, to her enormous relief, She'd lost most of the sensation in her nipples. (laughs) For a toothless infant, Eddie had a gum bite that would put a crocodile to shame. Joe had been counting down the days to getting her boobs back. But Eddie hadn't taken to that at all. At all. Instead of breast milk, she tried feeding him five different kinds of formula. Cow's milk, goat's milk, Sheep's milk, pureed banana, fruit juice, water, organic baby protein shakes ordered from a company in California, and gin. (laughs) (laughs) Well, all right, not the last one. But she'd been tempted a few times. (laughs) Weaning Eddie would mean she could have a few drinks herself again after over a year of abstinence. And as much as she loved her son, when he screwed up his perfect little face into a scarlet fist of rage and bellowed for boob. She couldn't help visualising a large glass of red wine where his head should be. (laughs) But he'd sit there, eyes trembling, making the signs for mummy and milk with his chubby clumsy hands over and over again until she gave in. Sometimes She wished they'd never done that baby signing class. Sometimes it was better not to know what your child wanted, so you didn't have to say no. The breakthrough had come at last, when she'd managed to stab herself in the finger whilst trying to wrestle open yet another obscure brand of baby milk. The bottle was tossed across the room untasted, but Eddie was fascinated by the red stuff oozing from her finger. She shook her hand, wincing, sucked off the blood, giving him Bunny to play with while she searched for a plaster. Thump. Bunny hit the kitchen tiles, sprawled awkwardly like a skyscraper suicide. <coughs> Said Eddie loudly. It was his only syllable so far, but he wielded it with devastating effect. It meant, look at me. rummaging in the bits and bobs box for elastoplast. Their kitchen towel wrapped around her finger was soft and red now. The cut was deeper than she'd thought. She glanced at Eddie in his high chair. He was grinning and tapping his right thumb against his chin. Mummy! She knew what came next. Hands starfishing to mimic milking a cow. Maybe sign language was not a subtle language. (laughs) Oh, Eddie! Won't well, you just try it? I've fed you twice already this morning, and his tits are dropping them off. <laughs> she could hear the desperate whine in her voice. Thank God Pete was around not to hear it, not that he ever was. But instead of the milk sign, Eddie was tipping his hand up to his open lips in the gesture for drink. Joe glanced around the room. There was a cold cup of tea on the counter, a puddle of rejected formula on the floor, and nothing else. Drink? Drink what, darling? Now Eddie was pointing at her excitedly and brushing his lip with his right index finger. Oh, it was one of the colour signs, she thought. Oh, what was it? Um, green? She looked down at her injured finger. No. Red? of course. Mummy, drink, red. He'd seen her lick the blood off her cut. She remembered letting him suck her fingers when he was tiny and had lost his dummy. Was this really so different? Surely not. What harm could it do? If it was a question of Eddie's bony gums gnawing on finger or nipple, She knew which she'd choose. She pulled off the makeshift paper towel bandage from her finger, reopening the wound. Eddie's eyes lit up, and he nearly bounced out of his chair in anticipation. She approached him slowly, dripping finger outstretched, as if he were a wild animal that might bite or bolt. Quite gently, he reached out and took her hand, then... Put her finger into his mouth and started sucking contentedly. It was an odd sensation, but it didn't hurt. Certainly not as much as the alternative. She stood there, slightly dazed, waiting for him to finish. But he didn't. At the breast, he could take ten or fifteen painful minutes to get his fill. She pulled her phone out of her pocket manipulating it awkwardly with her left hand, tapped the Facebook app, settled in for the long haul. (laughs) After that, they established a routine. Jo bought a diabetic finger pricker on Amazon and alternated hands and fingers for every feed so that she didn't get too sore. Luckily, it was a chilly autumn, so her gloves went unremarked, even indoors, and Pete never noticed that sort of thing, even on the rare nights he came home on time. Other mums had always said that they felt breastfeeding had made them feel close to their babies, and of course Jo was obliged to agree, but in all honesty she'd been too busy trying to block out the pain to really enjoy it. But all that had changed. Finger-feeding Eddie was easy, simple, mess-free and really quite enjoyable once she got used to it. Even better, he seemed to be thriving on this new source of nutrition. For all his gorgeousness, he'd always been a bit on the small side. Maybe anemic, the midwife said. But since switching from breast to finger, he'd started growing like a weed. Sometimes she'd supplement his diet with a bit of solid food. A blood-soaked rusk or baby biscuit. (laughs) Maybe some cow's milk mixed in with the blood according to the Maasai tradition. But she got the feeling that he only accepted these to humour her. She had more success with pureed bacon drizzled with finger juice, but couldn't start him on proper meat until his teeth came in. It really was a revelation. Even Pete commented on how big Eddie was getting and how happy they both seemed. No more getting her sore boobs out every other hour, hovering in chlorine reeking shop toilets or trying to be discreet in the corner of Costa. No, all she had to do now was prick her finger till it bled, pop it in Eddie's mouth and keep it there until he was satisfied. Everyone assumed he was soothed by the sucking alone. Old ladies melted and young dads grinned as they saw the sweet scene. Only Eddie and Joe knew their bond went way deeper than anyone guessed. Eddie had learned a lot of new signs in the past few months, but the two he used most were hungry, moving his hands up and down his tummy, and crossing his hands over his heart when he was finished. That meant love. And then, just when Joe and Eddie had everything just the way they liked it, Pete wrecked it by losing his job. He wouldn't tell her what happened, but luckily he'd got a year's redundancy money, so the mortgage was covered. It was all very awkward. Pete really didn't know what to do with himself outside of the office. He and Eddie were practically strangers. He was clueless about babies, and Joe didn't even like to leave them alone together in, pe- in case Pete absent-mindedly fed Eddie a button to choke on or let him play with scissors or a knife. Pete spent all his time lying on the sofa job hunting on his iPhone but she got a glimpse of the screen when bringing him snacks and she was pretty sure Ashley Madison wasn't a recruitment (laughs) agency she started banning Pete from the kitchen at mealtimes because instead of sitting quietly in his chair Eddie would stare and stare at his father then start to cry He seemed to know that finger-feeding wasn't something Daddy would understand. Soon, Eddie learnt his first word. No! He shouted it whenever Pete came near him, tapping his forehead with his thumb in fright as he made the sign for Daddy. Joe tried sending Pete out on missions to the library, the job centre, even the pub. She tried trips to the playground so Pete and Eddie could get to know each other. But neither of them seemed particularly interested in making friends. It sounded absurd, but if she had to name the feeling between them, the first word that popped into her head was rivalry. One night, she was feeding Eddie in the living room while she ate her own dinner, a juicy steak and kidney pie for a bit of variety. Pete had fallen asleep on the sofa in front of Top Gear, so couldn't object. She gave Eddie five minutes of finger, then, on a whim, sliced off a tiny fragment of meat from the end of her pie. She was pretty sure his teeth were starting to come in. She could feel the rough, knobbly shapes of incisors sleeping under his gums, so he might be able to do something with it. He ate the first piece eagerly, then made the sign for more. She fed him another, then another, larger and larger pieces. He ground them up and bolted them down. He finished the whole pie. Was this what he'd been waiting for all along? He tapped the fingers of his two strong, fat hands together. More! More, Mummy! More! She shook her head. No! Offered him finger instead. His face screwed up as he prepared to cry. There isn't any more, sweetie. We're all out of meat. No, said Eddie. No, no. And he pointed at Pete's (laughs) snoring (laughs) body. And then he pointed at the sharp steak knife in her hand. He was signing something frantically, willing her to understand. Hungry, more, daddy, drink. Said, What do you want, sweetie? Daddy, eat. Daddy, eat. Daddy's eaten already. He's full. No, no! His huge brown eyes, hungry, full of need and love. Her little boy, her man. Eat. Daddy!" She glanced across at the spread-eagled figure. E- Daddy! Okay, darling. She smiled softly. I'll just get you a new bib. <laughs>